As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, here to discuss the USA's routine opening win over Sweden in the Olympics. Just kidding. That's not how it went. I thought that might be how it went, and I was just sleep-deprived waking up at 5 a.m. Did not wake up at kickoff at 4.30 for this game. Woke up a little bit late and was surprised by the result. Joining me to break down a 3-0 emphatic win for Sweden over the U.S. Women's National Team are up first, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, uh, what time were you awake for this one? How was your morning disrupted or chaotic as a result? Yeah, I I did actually get up at 4.30, but turns out when you get up at 4.30, you do still miss a little bit of the game. (laughs) when you don't know which app to watch it on. I I was like going back and forth on all my apps, but I finally found it a few minutes in and um, I made it. No coffee because I I did take a power nap right afterwards. That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. Yeah, I always make that mistake as well of like, all right, kickoff is at this time, so I will wake up two minutes (laughs) before that and then I will be 10 minutes late for the game. Silly. Uh, But Jordan was awake at 4.30. Joe, you might have been awake at 4.30 your (laughs) time. I doubt you were awake at 1.30. Or did you stay up to watch this whole thing? No. So this was at 1.30 out here in the western portion Mm. of the United States. So I I slept all the way until 6 a.m., watched the game, then (laughs) watched it back over again, at least watched large stretches of it back over again. Yeah, it just just wasn't it just wasn't going to be. It just wasn't going to be for me at 1.30 a.m. Sorry, guys. How different, Joe, was your experience watching it the first time to the rewatch? Because this, with the U.S. men, it's a, it's a bit, you, they might win, they might lose, they might win emphatically, they might lose emphatically, and it's always sort of, to, in my mind, open at the start of the game. With this one, it's Sweden, the, they've caused the U.S. problems in the past, but I still thought with how dominant the United States have been, they would be 
comfortable, if not confident in this one. And for it to go the way it did, I was pretty surprised. I did have to sort of reset myself for the second viewing. How was that process for you? So I knew the score before I started watching it initially. Ah, And so I was kind of already prepared for what was going to happen. And there's advantages and disadvantages to knowing the score. Mm -hmm. I think it can cause biases, but it it does sort of help you know what to look for. And that's not always the right way to do it and the right way to watch games. But I came into this match at 6 a.m. knowing, okay, Sweden do some things right. It's really unlikely that you score three goals against the United States without doing some things right. So I was looking from the start to figure out, okay, how are they causing the U.S. problems? What are they doing well? And then Rewatch was just looking for more depth on those points. So it wasn't all that different, just more in depth the the second time around. And we are going to talk uh, a lot about the U.S., what they did, what they didn't do, what they can do after this game. But Jordan, let's uh, switch our attention to Sweden for a moment, who did go with a back four, something approximating a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3, depending on where you want to put Aslani. Uh, What were your expectations for Sweden coming into this game, and how impressive did you find them coming out of this game? Expectations for Sweden were high, because they are one of the best teams in the world, But I didn't expect them to have as much high pressure, high intensity as Mm -hmm. they did. And I think that's what was really the gut punch for the United States is this is a Swedish team who usually sits in a 4-4-2 and they possess a little bit more. They will sit in a block and then a little bit deeper and then attack from there. But that was not what we saw really at all. Um, This was a team who (laughs) came out and was like, I don't care who we're playing. We're good enough to impose what we want to do on the opponents. And um, it didn't matter that it was the U.S. Women's National Team. And I think that that confidence right from the get-go was what really um, was a big difference maker to me and showing that this Swedish team is not only who they were in the past and who they've been in the past, which is dominant, but that they can evolve and become, you know, take a little bit of this U.S. women's national team, high pressure, high intensity system and adapt it to who they are as well. Do you feel like this is a thing we'll continue to see from them as the tournament advances? Or do you think, is there a chance that this was a a technique and approach geared Uh towards defeating the U.S. women's national team with the way they would have been expected to play? I don't think you ever leave a game like that and think we're going to go back to Mm. what we were. (laughs) I do think it's changed them a little bit fundamentally. Um, And maybe that, you know, that's changed. Those changes have happened over uh, the course of having this new head coach. But I I feel like they are not it's not going to always look like this. I think that, that it will be more high intensity and high pressure. But I do think that they would have, depending on their opponents, maybe a little bit more possession because they're very good in possession as well. Um, but it, it was very dominant, like, all right, let's get after the U.S. as quickly as we can. Joe, I haven't, speaking of that dominance, I haven't seen possession stats. I don't know who dominated, but I don't much care because, again, the scoreline was 3-0 to Sweden. What did you see from the Swedes that caused the U.S. such problems? Because the United States trying to build, I would say, pretty directly, pretty regularly, never really seemed to connect that aside from a few moments when they did then get decent opportunities. But for the most part, it seemed like it was a lot of route one ball or balls played roughly in the area of a player, but never to feet that rolled wide and were then collected by Sweden and possession was restarted. What were they doing that caused so many issues? 
Okay, so that's a big question. I think we yes, should it split is. it. I think we should split it because there are things that Sweden did offensively that really mm-hmm. frustrated the U.S. and directly led to goals that I think were mm-hmm. pre-planned movements from them. But we've been talking about Sweden defensively, so I want to stick with that for a moment, and then we can get into the offensive stuff. Defensively, I really did notice this aggressive, high pressing, not not always like right at the edge of the box or pressing up into the box, sort of four four two, but a high block that had some clearly defined pressing triggers for Sweden. And and the trigger that I think was most impactful for them and gave the U.S. the most trouble was Sweden in that 4-4-2 when the U.S. would play the ball out to a fullback, usually from a center back or from Alyssa Nair out to Crystal Dunn or Kelly O'Hara. The Sweden's outside midfielders would then step up and press the ball receiver. So press Crystal Dunn or press uh, Kelly O'Hara on that right side. And they'd close them down so quickly that, that the U.S.'s fullbacks had no real ability to move the ball in a purposeful way. So sometimes Crystal Dunn would play it back to Becky Sauerbrunn on that left side, but then the ball just kind of sat there and the U.S. didn't continue to circle possession, cycle possession over to the right side. And then Sweden could win the ball or press even more aggressively once the ball went back to Sauerbrunn. Sometimes Crystal Dunn would try to dribble forward and she had some success doing that on the left side of the United States. But most of the time, Taylor, the passes that you talked about in that question that you just asked me, they're these direct kind of hopeful vertical passes up that wing because Sweden was bearing down on Crystal Dunn. She didn't have passing options. I thought Sam Mewis was a little too high on that left side for the U.S. to be able to pass through the pressure. Uh, Lindsey Horan playing the number six for Julie Ertz in that first half didn't really have any ability to get on the ball because Aslani, uh, Sweden's number 10, wearing the number nine, not confusing at all, was always <laughs> either on her, marking her, or blocking off passing angles into her. So when the U.S. deliberately chose not to continue to cycle possession from left to right to get out of that trap, their only other option is to go vertically. And they didn't have numbers to win the ball. They didn't have success playing that way. And Sweden just went back to that well. They went back to that trap over and over again. And it gave the U.S. fits, Taylor. And just with that, I want to add on to it was a very compact diamond. I felt like when that was initiated, Joe, as you mentioned, it was like the winger would go and press the outside back. And then the rest of the diamond with the highest player for Sweden, maybe an attacking midfielder, if it's Aslani, um, and then one of their holding mids, it was like this diamond trap where they, they took off every single option that was yeah. near. And that's, I think, a little bit more detail to the way that they pressed, which was devastating for the U.S. They couldn't handle it. And then not only that, they lost the set first and second ball battle the yeah. entire game. Yeah, we heard, I think, a couple different times off Swedish goal kicks, you could hear the mics picking up uh, first and seconds, first and seconds, <laughs> which was, I think, usually the the defense reminding everybody to attack and try to win that first ball, and if not, win that second ball. And and, and that stood out to me because like it was one of those moments when you, everybody's yelling the right thing, but then nobody was really stepping to win those, and there was definitely a, a, a loss of momentum as the game goes on conceding three will do that but I also think never feeling like you have figured out your opponent will also do that and that is sort of the narrative of the overall game for me is the United States maybe expecting Sweden to be in those in that sort of four four two, very defensive sitting back frustrating blocking passing lanes inviting the U.S. to find a way through and then countering and I also think some of the U.S.'s approach was they're going to be defensive, so if we can catch them in transition, we need to be direct and aggressive, except that Sweden were always direct and aggressive and never really transitioning all the way back. So even when the U.S. would go direct, Sweden usually had numbers in the right spaces to deal with that, 
and the United States, to Joe's point, did not. And so then it ended up just being this sort of trying the same thing over and over again. And every now and then it would come off. But that was almost because Sweden were maybe stretched or had too many players on one side. And for the U.S., if you then think, oh, okay, that one worked that time, we should keep persisting with it, that's almost the exception rather than the rule, and I think kind of plays into Sweden's hands. What else did we see from the way the U.S. was trying to build out or what Sweden was doing to limit that? I, I open that to either of you, because I saw uh, the United States trying to play through Crystal Dunn down that left-hand side, and Sweden basically inviting that ball, then blocking off every option so that Dunn either had to play it backward or try to play a risky pass centrally, usually to Lindsey Horan. And the one that stood out to me was in the 23rd minute. Horan has made a run central to show, but the ball hasn't been delivered yet. So then she has to go back to where she started and try to make that run again. And basically, as she's turning to make that run, Crystal Dunn is trying to pass the ball to her. It's no longer on, and now it has to go back. Sweden step, and they end up winning the ball, and I think forcing a corner. And that felt, again, very representative of the game of the United States trying something yeah. or like making the theoretical right run, that run not working, and then trying it again. But this time, it definitely didn't work. And I would say, like, the one word that I left this game with was disjointed. Mm -hmm. It felt very disjointed from a U.S. women's national team that we don't ever see them like that. Yeah. Or if we do, it's for 10 minutes, they figure it out, and they can adapt. And I think that was a really good example. And it also – so when you're playing against a high-press team, there's a couple of ways that you can beat it, right? We've mentioned, like, try to play – over the press, right? Play a long ball, win the, the first ball. But the forwards could not, especially in the first half. Carly Lloyd did a little bit better of a job at this. But I think the three front runners in the first 45 nearly gave the ball away every single time they had it, which is incredible if you're talking about the, the, who those players are, who they've been, especially Kristen Press in the last few months has just been, Unbelievable. So if, you, okay, your forwards can't hold it. Well, then what's the next option? Can you try to play through it? And one of the things that I was really shocked by, and I don't know if you guys noticed this too, but it, it took to the 20th minute for the U.S. to finally put their foot on the ball. And when they um, were trying to, as you mentioned, they're trying to transition quickly and um, beat that press as quickly as they could. But Lindsay Horan put her foot on the ball and played backwards. And I was like, thank goodness, someone trying to like, set the pace and and offset the pace of what Sweden was bringing at them because it's not as if this U.S. team can't play through pressure. They're all very skilled, very talented on the ball. They can withhold a little bit of pressure, but I think they got so rattled and so caught up in the high intensity and the game, right? You haven't played in a big international competition now in uh, two years, and so there's a, there's a lot of emotions that go into it. Uh, but I, I was like, 20th minute, perfect. They're going to settle it down. They're mm -hmm. going to try to go at some points, but control the pace of the game as far as when they try to counter and when they try to possess. But it was really that one time. We didn't really see them try to possess that much throughout the entirety of the game. I think for Jordan, me, I think, I think you really, oh, sorry, Joe, I just wanted to say, I think you really like nailed it there with the U.S. just never really settling in and calming it down and finding their way through it felt like the u.s was reactive from start to finish mm -hmm. and more often than not reactive in a bad way joe sorry over to you no no you're fine taylor i think for me and i this was this is the top line in my notes it just says the u.s need more horizontal ball movement and i know <laughs> i know we want to yeah. focus on sweden and the things they did well yeah, sweden, we can go presented, it's fine. sweden presented this 442 block that that looked immovable 
it looked like it looked like this unbreakable, unstoppable kind of block. And and they executed it really well. They were extremely organized, which is always really impressive, especially on the international level where you don't have as much time to train. But the U.S. also had their part in making it look immovable, right? They needed to put their foot on the ball and play backwards more. And I know Vlatko, and this this goes back to Jill Ellis's time in charge of this group as well. They want to play direct. They want to play vertically. They want to get the ball into the attack as quickly as possible. And that's fine. The best teams in the world do that. They'll take the quickest path to goal from time to time. But the U.S., in order to make Sweden's 4-4-2 look less unmovable, immovable, they needed to break this block. And, and the way that I think they should have done it is with that more patient approach at times, with moving the ball side to side. I talked about the lack of switches in possession already. I think it was the seventh or eighth minute the U.S. had a switch, and it was a great look getting the ball from the near side over to the far side for Tobin Heath to drive forward or, or whatever the situation is. Those switches found gaps because Sweden was going more man-to-man in midfield at times to block off passing angles and, and pinching in towards the near side where the ball was. There's space on the opposite side of the field. There's opportunities over there, but it just felt like the U.S. was unwilling to look for those opportunities, and, and that just made all the strong, fundamental, well-executed things that Sweden was doing in that 4-4-2. It just made them look even better in that shape. This is just my takeaway from this game. Like, and I am definitely not an expert when it comes to all things Vlatko Antonovsky, but this felt much like coaching to me as opposed to the United States not looking for that sort of lateral move, Joe, because I'm with you that it was on. And if it wasn't on it, it should have been looked for more often just to pull Sweden apart, just for the U.S. to get a little bit of dominance. But what I saw instead was them being vertical, as we've already talked about. Then we have that hydration break in the 33rd minute. And a thing that really stood out to me was at the end of it, there's lots of instruction. Vlatko's talking to all the different players, lots of different players, bring over water and bring over cold towels. There's a, there's a team spirit behind it. I felt a little bit reassured until as they're walking away, the last player to leave that huddle is Becky Sauerbrunn and she's talking with Vlatko and it's pretty clear that the takeaway is just go direct over the top. Like Mm. you see him gesture, you see her turn and be like, over? Over the top? And then he like nods and she's like, okay. And after that, they once again go direct, but this time they're no longer going to Crystal Dunn. It's usually Becky Sauerbrunn trying to force it into one of the midfielders or Alex Morgan who's now dropping, but then they're also trying to go direct into the that front line and having forwards make runs behind. So there was, I think, a couple moments after that, Sam Ewis picks up the ball, tries to play an Alex Morgan who has checked back and she plays a through ball and it goes to nobody. <laughs> and right out of the hydration break to see that level of a disjointed approach, it goes back to Jordan's point that that is the kind of takeaway here. It's the U.S., even as they're solving things and adjusting some parts of something, they're not adjusting the other parts. So I guess to extend my cooking analogy from the U.S. men's review show, Joe, like it's like you have two different things burning on the stove. So you turn off the burner <laughs> to one and you're like, well, that should solve it. It's like, no, the other one's still burning. You got to deal with that, too. It's like it's like you have two choices if you're the United States in this game. You either do play those switches and do put your foot on the ball and be more patient, or mm-hmm. you win the first and second balls. And the U.S. didn't yep. do either one of those things because, Taylor, I agree. I think with how often the U.S. chose to play direct, part of it was them not being able to figure out the trap that we talked about with Sweden's wide midfielders. But the other part of it is I, th- I think that's just what Vlatko wanted to do. I totally agree with you. So if that's the direction you're going, you have to do things to make that style effective. And, and the most important thing is actually retaining possession as you're playing those vertical passes. And the U.S. just didn't do that today. Yeah. Well, that's where I'm going to – you can coach and you can do all the things, but if you can't connect a pass – there, I mean, how many times did we see a pass miss by two yards? 
Yeah. 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 More than I've ever seen, I think, of recent time with the the women's national team. It was like they they were rattled. They were so rattled that even there's the simplest of passes. Like I had mentioned 42nd minute Dahl Kemper tries to switch the point of attack, a big diagonal over to Kristen Press. She missed by 20 yards. I mean, she doesn't do that. And, and that is the, that's where it's really interesting to me that, um, yeah, and there should be better, like that moment. I, I didn't catch that, Taylor. So I'm really glad you caught that last little bit of Becky Sauerbrunn in the huddle because I didn't catch that. And so even that ball by Abby Dahlkemper, now I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. That's what they just talked about. Uh, but at the same time, the execution just wasn't yeah. there. The simple passes that they do routinely was not there. And yes, there are other, you know, when you get high pressed, maybe if the pop off your, def- when you pop off your defender, if it's not enough space, you're not going to be able to receive it. Or they try to play a little extra away from the defender just to give you that room, but you're not prepared for that. There's a lot of different factors in that, but I mean, yes, coaching, but no execution. That was just so uncharacteristic. All right, we're going to talk some more about the execution or lack thereof. We'll talk more Sweden. We'll talk more goals. But first, we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. We are back. I do want to break down uh, maybe all three of the goals, though the first one and the third one are pretty similar. Do we have anything else we wanted to spotlight on Sweden and what they were doing? I thought uh, the positioning of Rolfo and uh, Jakobsen probably merits a little bit of discussion just because I think Mm -hmm. that was fundamental in the U.S. not being able to build out of the back much. Did either of you uh, have thoughts on either of them? I did, yeah, and I think it it does tie into that trap that I mentioned on the on the near side for the U.S., especially with Crystal Dunn. We saw it on the right side for the U.S. as well. Those players were just hunting the ball down, but but not all the time, and they, they did it. They managed to hunt while staying connected to the rest of their team, and that that was really impressive to me. Seeing Sweden press and know the triggers and look totally compact even while stepping high that was impressive. So yeah, I thought I thought Jakobsen and Rolfo did a, did an excellent job in this game. Joe, I know you and I have talked about this, just how sometimes the defensive work rate of attacking players, the frontline players, whether it's a center, like a number nine or the wingers, it can actually put them in better attacking spots. And I feel like that's what happened when they double teamed on the the outside in the channels. Then if Sweden won the ball, then they were in space and they could dribble out the the back line, but really pinned wide. So I really do think that their defensive work made it so difficult in the channels for the U.S. to create anything um, by getting back, but it also set them up to move forward. I would also just say the one thing that I really noticed about how Sweden bypassed, bypassed the U.S.'s press is 
they used the the high press of the U.S. against them, and they typically were playing through um, Aslani, and she would find a spot on one of the two sides of the holding mid. It was Lindsey Horan in the first half. It was Julie Ertz in the second half. And I, I think people thought maybe Ertz would be have that under control. But they did a really good job of playing like little up, back, and throughs. So they bypassed the press, dropped it off to another player, and then played out the other side. I thought that little combination is not super tricky. Um, sometimes Aslani would turn and dribble out of that situation when they did bypass the press, but it got the U.S. chasing centrally and created bigger gaps for them. And I think that they just were really brave in the way that they built through the middle. I, I absolutely agree with you, Jordan. And I think the U.S. chasing and adjusting to what Sweden was trying to do is fundamental to, at the very least, that first goal, because it's in the 24th minute and 11 seconds, I noted that one, it's a Sweden throw on the far side of the field, and the United States, I'm assuming this is a thing that was intentional, that we've seen them do before, I think I've just not seen it not work this glaringly, but when Sweden had that throw, the U.S. has pretty much every single player except for, I think, Crystal Dunn on that side of that half. So it's basically nine outfield players on one side of the pitch close to where the throw is being taken. But that's also both of your wingers. And it was like Alex Morgan furthest up, I think, uh, trying to cut off the, the throw back to one of the center backs. But then it's Tobin Heath and it's Kristen Press within maybe 10 yards of each other of each other on that far sideline. It's Lindsey Horan sliding over. It's Sam Ewis also sliding over. And... If you've got those numbers there, the idea, I think, would be, okay, you can take that throw, but we're going to have numbers everywhere. Even if you throw it to somebody's feet, we're going to press them, we're going to win the ball, and now we've got numbers there to quickly build. But the U.S. are are slow even with those numbers around, and maybe there's a diffusion of responsibility element, but it eventually goes to Aslani. Aslani plays to uh, Angeldahl, uh, one of the central midfielders, and she is only maybe 10 yards away from the U.S., but she is 10 yards away from all of those U.S. players. She's more central. So when she receives the ball and turns, Jakobsen has taken Crystal Dunn like basically all the way back and out wide. Glass is now making that overlapping run, and it's essentially a 3v1. Sam Ewis comes over to try to help, and then I think puts pressure on Uncle Dahl, the, the central midfielder. She plays the ball to Glass, and you can see Sam Ewis then be like, alright, well someone's go- oh, I have to get to her? And then she tries to make that run, but she can't close. And just how quickly the, U- uh, the U.S. were sort of opened up, how quickly Sweden were able to establish possession, move the ball quickly, and put themselves in a really strong position so that Crystal Dunn is worrying about about Gloss driving centrally and getting a shot off. So she has to cheat a little bit central. She has to leave uh, Jakobsen out wide pretty open. And that's why there is so much time for her to pick her head, pick up her head, find the ball, play that in. And it's a great cross, but it's just that sort of quick breakdown and a lack of urgency from the U.S. Steamrolls, domino effect, and suddenly the United States are 1-0 down. Throw-ins in soccer now are almost becoming another set piece right? It's another chance for teams to pinpoint weak points in the opposition's defensive shape and then exploit those weaknesses. In credit to Sweden, they absolutely do that on this throw-in. Taylor, you're pointing out how the U.S. is all sucked up against that side, right? They're all tucked in to the far side. The U.S. is right, Sweden's left. And that's common. A lot of teams do that all over the world. You want to press up against the sideline because that's your chance as as the defensive team to trap, win the ball, and start your own attacking moment. But when the ball comes into play and none of Lindsey Horan, Sam Mewis, or Rose Lavelle step to actually win it, I, I watch that sequence over and over again. Those players, I mean, they take maybe a half-hearted step and neither none of them are really in the spot to win the ball in pressure. And so you're right, Taylor, diffusion of responsibility. No one actually goes to win the ball. It's way too passive from the U.S. Sweden can then just 
switch to the far side where there's so much space. That, if you're Sweden, is the perfect outcome of this moment. It's exactly what you want. And then you have Crystal Dunn backpedaling. Yeah, like you mentioned, Sam U is coming over to help. But it, it doesn't matter. It's too late at that point. The, the, the damage to the United States has already been done. They're in a numbers down situation on the far side after a throw in where they're, the rest of their outfield players are having to recover. They're never going to get there in time. So when Jakobsen can then get the ball and, and just plays a phenomenal cross into the box for Blackstinius, who scores, it's a great move from Sweden. But I mean, the, the defensive issues are there for the U.S. Like we talked about with them not winning first and second balls in possession they need that that grit they need that intensity they need that willingness to step to the ball and win it to cut out moments like this because they were too passive in midfield and in these sequences goals like this are what happen when you're too passive in midfield I've always found it interesting and I've tried to figure out how the U.S. defend in this 4-3-3 because really it's three flat midfielders. Uh, poorly today. Yeah. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's three flat midfielders and so when you're talking about the horizontal space you have to cover Honestly, it's a little bit easier when you have Julie Ertz in there. She is so comfortable in the center of that three, and she can cover a little bit more ground. But think about Lindsay Horan now as that center player. So maybe you're not comfortable with how much she can cover from side to side because she's typically covering less in one of the outside spots of those that three midfield. So I think it's challenging, and that's where most teams, I think, can get at the U.S. women's national team is that space next to the three horizontal midfielders. Because as you said, I mean, this is a corner kick, but I think that this is where Sweden, excuse me, it's a throw in, but I think this is where Sweden did a really good job is occupying and utilizing the space just to the outside of those three players because the wingers don't track back. The U.S. don't call on their wingers like a lot of other, you know, 4-3-3s or 4-2-3-1s where those players need to get back defensively. They kind of give them freedom to stay up and not track all the way back at times into the um, defensive third, which can help you if you try to quick fast break. But if that's not on and you, that space then becomes a 2v1, a 3v1 at times for Crystal Dunn and Kelly O'Hara, um, and that's a lot of ground for that central outside midfielder to cover. And I think that Sweden did a good job of exposing that. Even teams like Liverpool and the Champions League this past season, Taylor, I remember a show, it was you, me, and and Ryan, I believe, analyzing one of their games, and I think it was against Real Madrid. Liverpool often defend in that 4-3-3 shape, and they don't bring their wingers back. The U.S. men's national team does a very similar thing. And, and a lot of teams do that because they want to high press and they want to be on the front foot, just like this, this U.S. team does. That's exactly what they want. But in a game like this where they struggled to put pressure on the ball in their front line, with their front line, and Sweden was finding space behind that first line for the U.S., finding space in midfield, being able to turn and face, whether that's in possession or off of a throw-in like it was for this first goal, then the U.S. is kind of toast, right? And we saw this again on the third goal. As soon as that, that ball side winger, as soon as the front line is bypassed, they're not really tracking back to help. The fullback's going to be isolated. Crystal Dunn was isolated over and over again in this game. And those are some of the challenges that you have when you defend in a 4-3-3 as opposed to something like mm-hmm. a 4-5-1. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also where I feel like Sweden's prep was perfect because yes. with Rolfo sort of sitting wide, forcing O'Hara to, to stay back or know that if she goes bombing forward, she's then going to have to bomb backwards to make sure that there's not just a wide open counter. Same thing for Crystal Dunn. So you're pinning those fullbacks back, but that if the wingers aren't dropping, if they're staying high or staying kind of congested in one area, 
you have to go direct, you have to go long to get them the ball. You don't have those overlapping runs or those immediately overlapping runs like you might with, say, Liverpool or with the U.S. women in other games. So, again, the kind of attacking rhythm breaks down and the mm-hmm. expectations of, we've done this before, I know when I receive this ball in turn, this player will be checking into space, this player will be uh, sort of making that diagonal crossing run, I know my options, I know my reads, I can play that ball. And it just seemed like everything was a half step slow or even slower than that. And so things weren't working. All of that then, Jordan, makes me wonder, like, you've played college ball, you've played pro. I've had an experience like this at amateur level. So I I, I turn to you to, to be the savvy professional and tell me. But this game had all the familiar symptoms I think it's it's very easy to say this was the U.S. being arrogant and getting punished. And I think that is that is oversimplification, and I think that's an easy narrative, a lazy narrative. What I would say, and I think this is different, I really do, is that if you're the United States and you expect your opponent to do certain things and you set up to, yeah, we're not going to have our wingers track back because we want to put them under pressure. We're going to have our fullbacks overlap because there's no way they're going to sit fullbacks on us. And you go into a game... Like, I've had this in a tournament where it's like, oh, the third place game or like the third team, we know they lost their first two games. We've won our first two games. This is going to be no problem. And if you're approaching a game from a, we know what we're going to do, we know how we want to do it, we'll be able to play our game. And then you don't. I- I've had those experiences when things then break down and it's hard to get back do- into it yeah. just because mentally the game isn't being played the way you expected it to be. Have you ever had uh, that similar of an experience? And if so, is there a chance that that's what we saw here today for the U.S.? I think that is a chance that that's a little bit of what we saw. And honestly, I'm a little surprised that there's so much veteran experience on this team when things you you start to notice that things aren't working. And I know that there was a water break at the middle, you know, middle of both halves or really kind of late in the first half, 33rd minute. I think you mentioned Taylor. I'm kind of shocked. No one like went down with a um, air quotes injury right? (laughs) and just allowed them to regroup and settle down. Because the game was out of hand, out of their hand. The Sweden was in control, and they were in control of the majority of this one. So I'm surprised that when you start to feel that as a group, that you wouldn't say, okay, we need to stop this momentum. And I think even in the 33rd minute when there was a water break, Sweden's coach was really upset about it because they were, yeah. they did have all yeah. of the momentum. And he was <laughs> like, that. no, 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 no. We don't want to <laughs> lose it because those, those breaks can be really important. So I think you have to have a little bit of, um, you know, professionalism about it. And I, I was actually shocked that they didn't. I mean, it was hard because I don't think the U.S. got into a tackle until. Honestly, the second half when Ertz came in, I guess that Crystal Dunn one where she slid tackled in in that recovery run, but there wasn't any big tackles that maybe would have allowed for that moment. But I don't know, go down with like a pretend hammy. I know that that's not how the game should be played, but that's how the game is played. And sometimes Giorgio Chiellini would have done, put it that way. Yeah, exactly. And so I just felt like they allowed the momentum to get to continue to be in Sweden's hands. Um, so yeah, I've been in, in those types of games and it is, it's, it feels like you're chasing and that is what we saw chasing. Honestly, yeah. th- this is what I kept thinking. You could have switched the, pl- the jerseys for these teams and been like, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, this is, this is the U S. The Sweden was the U S because I feel like that's the typical performance we see from the U S is that a lot of things that Sweden did in, in their high pressing and their making teams uncomfortable. And it gives you perspective for all these games that we watch the U S play for what their opponents go through. 
because they were essentially who the U.S. has played so many games over and over and just dominated. That happened to them today. I love your point about Gerritsen not wanting the water break between his reaction to that and uh, Gabrielince and all the news there this week. Not a great uh, week for people who like to drink water, it seems. Not, not <laughs> well a lot of that happening. Well played. Oh, man, I'm, I'm still sort of uh, like in shock by this one. And, and that's where like I go back to, I don't, maybe it wasn't overconfidence for the U.S. women, but maybe it, there was a level of arrogance, and I would say not unearned arrogance, but just we'll be able to do this and then mm-hmm. to not be able to do it. I think you're absolutely right. That creates that panic that you expect those veterans to then come in. And I think that's a big reason why we do see the introduction of Carly Lloyd and Julie Ertz. Uh, I think there was some uh, frustration that it was Sam Ewis coming off. I think many people, at least on Twitter, felt like it should have been Lindsey Horan. I think Sam Ewis is, I don't have her passing stats in front of me, but I will venture to guess that they are not great. And I also thought she was pretty positionally unsound. She was maybe caught too central on occasion. She was caught too forward on others. And I think didn't track runs particularly well either. So I think that's why that change happens. Alex Morgan is one where I I didn't really even notice what she was doing or I had a hard time sort of tracking what she was asked to do aside from stretch the back line and get on the end of crosses when they come in. Did either of you see anything in particular from Alex Morgan, what she was doing, what she was not doing that led to that Carly Lloyd sub? Or was it just Carly Lloyd will come in and fight for everything and hold up the ball? So let's get her on the pitch. I didn't see much from Alex Morgan in the first half. So I think that that alone is is potentially a reason to make a change. Joe, I know you were going to say something there. I was just going to say, I, sorry, I guess this is less about Alex Morgan and more about the U.S. forward line and their approach That's in fine. the final third in general. But man, the U.S. was not set up to help players like Alex Morgan or even Carly mm-hmm. Lloyd in the second half succeed. I don't know if you guys saw this. Every time, almost every time, the U.S. got into the final third in the first half, which was not very often, they they just ran runners off-ball runners into the box and had one player on the ball out wide. Most of the time it was Crystal Dunn and just waited for a cross. It happened in the 22nd minute, Crystal Dunn on the ball in the final third. Four bodies in the box, no one coming to give Dunn support. One minute later, 23rd minute, Dunn gets on the ball in a very similar spot and thinks Alex Morgan is checking towards her because Morgan is is more rotated over to the Mm -hmm. left in this moment. But Morgan actually runs away into the box. This is a clear tactical instruction from Blacko. This isn't just, you know, players ad-libbing out on the field. Dunn thinks Morgan is coming to check because she wants to combine. And Dunn plays that pass and turns it over. 44th minute, Christian Press on the right side has the ball wide, on the left side, excuse me, wide on that side. And everyone goes into the box for a cross. It got a little bit better in the second half. I think the players just naturally said, okay, we want to play, we want to combine. But man, it's so hard if you're a number nine in a game like that where the box is crowded because Sweden can see what you're doing. Every time the U.S. has the ball in the final third, they're sending runners into the box. Okay, that's fine. We'll pressure the ball wide and then pack numbers into the box and deal with those crosses. It just was so hard for Alex Morgan and the rest of that front line to have any real tangible impact on this game because in possession, ball, hopeful long balls were coming their way that they really couldn't win or, or didn't do a good enough job of winning, probably some of both. When the U.S. did advance play, they didn't have many opportunities to actually make meaningful off-ball runs and, and manipulate Sweden defenders. Christian Press did a good job of that in the second half and found some space with Megan Rapino. and I think some of those moments were the U.S.'s best attacking sequences. But far too often in this game, Alex Morgan and then even Carly Lloyd, who I think was better and had a bigger impact in the second half than Morgan did in the first, they just didn't have enough opportunities to change this game. Yeah. Uh, just one point off of that um, that run that you said Alex Morgan checked towards Crystal Dunn and 
actually it was like a fake check, right? Like I'm going to go towards the ball and then button hook around and come back into the box. I am kind of on Alex Morgan's side. Like you want her in the box. Alex Morgan is not a, I'm going to combine and be creative in the channel type of player. I'm saying, yes, does somebody need to do that? Absolutely. But if you're crystal done, do you fake that and allow Alex to get into the box or like, where is the disconnect there? Right? Because clearly someone should be going to help. I don't know if it's on Alex Morgan that she needs to be that player. Who is the other player that should have been doing that? Or where does that support need to come from? I think it's one of the wingers or it's um, an attacking midfielder on that side. It's just, that's not the position you also want to put your central forward in who She's made her name for inside the 18, right? Not in the channels, not being a combination player for putting the ball in the back of the net. And um, I understand that running. It's just like that's where the disconnect is. And and it's just felt so strange that sometimes when things aren't going right, you try to do things that are so outside of what you normally do just to like make something happen. And it just then it kind of allows you to it doesn't ever allow you to catch back up to what you're actually good at. I think sometimes, especially in like the modern era, crossing becomes almost vilified or looked down upon that it's like, oh, they launched 30 crosses into the box like they had no ideas. And that can definitely be the case if that's all they're doing is sort of waiting for everyone to get central. Then you lob it in and hope for the best. But as Sweden showed in this game, crosses can be very devastating when you're able to hit your opponent in transition, when you're making them uncomfortable and react from a, from a position of discomfort. They're not going to be as confident. They're not going to make the play they would otherwise. If you let them get sort of set in where they need to be, then they know where they are in relation to the to the player they're marking, where they are in relation to the ball coming in, and they know how to attack it or how not to attack it. And I think that for me was a big part of it, that oftentimes when the ball would come in, it would be after sort of runs had been made, people, numbers were in the box, and then it would yeah. be lofted to the back post. And like, look at the way the U.S. hits the woodwork in the first and the second half. It's for the first one, it's what, a 40 yard ball from like the right channel, but way deep from Kelly O'Hara that finds Rose Lavelle for, for the, the header off the post. And in the second half, it's Megan Rapino looking like she's going to shoot at the near post again, but then cutting back and, uh, and squaring the pass and it goes off the post. But it, it, it sort of. It, it catches Sweden unaware. It catches mm-hmm. them out. It it puts them in a position where they're reacting, again, from a place where they aren't as comfortable from positioning where they aren't as solid, and that's where you get those chances. And I think, aside from those two, those crosses into the box that threatened and made Sweden uncomfortable were few and far between. The U.S. The US played this game in a straight line. Sweden played this game in every direction, right? <laughs> Sweden's crosses came after shifting side to side or attacking vertically in transition, then sending runners out wide to overload and having those a, a few lateral passes in those really important moments. The U.S. just played forward and then and then they switched their angle completely and then just played bo- crosses into the box. There was no real consistent disorganization of Sweden, which let them get far yeah. too comfortable in their own defensive third. Mm-hmm. On, on Sweden's final goal, on their third goal of this game, it comes in the 72nd minute. They're in possession. The U.S. is back in their own half. Sweden play down that right side. They overload Crystal Dunn. There's almost nothing she can do about it. Megan Rapinoe doesn't really come and help in that moment. She half-heartedly sort of jogs over. And it may be fair play to her. That might not even be her job, as we've already kind of discussed. But there's a breakdown on the left side of the United States defense. Becky Sauerbrunn then can't rotate over fast enough. Glass gets forward in behind Dunn, crosses it in. And then it's Lena Hurtig who scores that header 
I mean, that's how you disorganize a team. You look for the weaknesses in their shape. And Sweden very clearly knew, okay, we're attacking those pockets right outside the U.S.'s midfield behind their winger and in front of their fullbacks. We have areas to target. We have off-ball runners moving into those spaces. And we're going to be hitting balls at pace into the box to actually create attacking chances. The U.S. did some of that. They had some nice moments, and I think we'll see way more of that against Australia, against New Zealand as this tournament, as this group stage continues. But there just wasn't enough of it today. And I, the, the the difference, the gulf in the approaches and, and the quality difference between Sweden and the U.S. and how they actually broke down a block and crossed the ball was pretty stark to me. Yeah, that, that third goal was so nice, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, The ball into the box and that little like dummy Mm -hmm. fake run where you you take a step forward and then you fade off the back shoulder. The running is so smart and you utilize the space because of the way that the the U.S. had to shift. But I do want to ask you, like, I know we're we're talking about, um, you know, I think for the most part, the way Sweden was playing, Crystal Dunn was in really difficult situations all the time. But in this situation, what if she just stayed? What if she didn't try to? And, you know, this is the... I think the catch 22 of a high press system is you tend to like fly in to try to defend in moments where what if she stayed and managed to space in behind her and allowed for this, the midfielders in front of her to shift. Do you think that that would have helped at all? I, I do not, because okay. I think in that moment, I, I, I see what you mean. I yeah. think the problem there is going to be that I think everybody is basically marked up. So Haran has somebody she's marking. Lavelle does. So too does Julie Ertz at that point. Ertz is sitting on Aslani. So I, I don't think Rapino is going to trot glass because we know she doesn't. Uh, and so if uh, like Dunn holds off, then I think that allows Jakobsen to turn. I think glass still makes that overlap. And now mm-hmm. basically you have a 2v1 that I think... Maybe it's slower. Maybe Becky Sauerbrunn doesn't then have to slide over. And maybe that does right. help. So maybe that is the the point there. Or I she dri- she follows the runner and the player on the ball dribbles centrally and creates a 2v1 in a different part of the field. Yeah. So I think I think where I go with this one, honestly, is I, I have more frustration with Megan Rapino. And, and Joe, I mm-hmm. take your point that, like, if we're not asking the forwards to track back, if we want them to stay high... It makes sense. And so I understand why she doesn't like pursue there. But simultaneously, I think this again speaks to the US not realizing that they're in a knife fight, basically, and that like you can't sort of be like, yeah, but we'll now because the idea there, I'm sure is, well, we'll send our forwards higher and wider, and that will make Sweden be more conservative. They have to keep numbers back. But Sweden weren't playing that game. And, And it just seemed like the US kept trying to make changes to be like, Again, it, it boils down to maybe arrogance, but it, it felt like the changes were all like, you guys know who we are, right? And like once we put people in the familiar positions, then you guys will back off and get nervous. And when Sweden never got nervous, I think it, it made the U.S. just uncomfortable yeah. for 90 minutes. Well, um, what, let's, did, really quick, did you guys get yeah. the, the minute that Megan Rapinoe went in? I don't have that marked down. But she, that goal happens in the 60, 72nd. She'd been on for eight, 64th minute. They were okay, there. so she, she's playing minutes. less than 30 minutes, right? Yeah. And I think that no matter what the tactics are, if you're not True. like working so hard defensively, I mean, you can sprint and do defensive work and attacking work for 30 minutes. If, and you can yeah. make decisions that maybe are against what, I'm sorry to say it, if you're a coach out there, you on the field need to make decisions that are right in the moment. And if the coach is telling you to stay high and wide and you feel, okay, there is a 2v1 situation and I'm putting my outside back at a, a in a poor spot, I need to do some defensive work. Yeah. You have to be willing to make that decision in the moment. And I, yeah, I just feel like 
it's not it's not enough. Like you you yep. have to especially when you're down two goals. You should be flying yeah. around trying to make sure you're doing everything that you're not leaving the field and be like, "Oh, man, I sh- I should have done a little more on that." And if you, and if you're that veteran that you yeah. like like you want Megan Rapido to come in and like pick the team up, energize, but also put in that big challenge, make that big defensive run to show like, "Hey, that's what we've got to do. Mm-hmm. That's the fight we're in totally. now and we've got to respond to it." Yep. Agree. All right, so we will finish it up. Sorry, Joe, I thought you had something to say. So I I, I didn't want to end on a rant there, but it seems I have. Uh, We'll be back for our final segment in which we talk about where the U.S. goes from here. Any other final points? We should maybe talk about that second goal if we want to, but we will be back to see this one out in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, we are back for our final segment. Uh, I leave it to to either of you before we get to the sort of big picture takeaways where the U.S. goes from here. Are there other things that we should maybe break down? Should we talk individual performances? Should we talk anything else about the goals? Uh, how say you all? I'll talk about the second goal really quick because I think that it's really interesting. Joe and I mm-hmm. on MLS Assist talk sometimes about corner kick defending and uh, should you zone? Should you man mark? Should it be a mixture? And um, you know, I'm, I'm always a fan of a mixed zone and man marking system, which the U.S. did. They have a zone across the six and then they have man markers. And what I think Sweden did really well is they congested the zone. They put all their players right there in the zone. So when you have Lindsay Horan and, um, Rose Lavelle marking players right next to Julie Ertz, who is your ball winner in the zone, that's so many players. She can't get her footing right. She can't go and clear that ball. It was, it was smart tactics in a very simple way from Sweden on, on that, um, man marking or, or pr- bringing those players into the zone because it, it made it difficult for the U.S. and they end up finding the back of the net on a, on a corner kick. I will say though that like I'm with you, but it's also I, I think a failure from the U.S. I don't think Alyssa Nair had a very good game in this one. I think maybe you could make an argument that for the first ball coming in, she could be a little bit more aggressive mm-hmm. coming off her line. And I think I wouldn't be as critical, except that my very first note for this game was Sweden having a free kick in the fourth minute, and I basically staying rooted uh, to her line as the ball comes in, and there was just a moment of indecision there. Mm. And here, Blackstenius is unmarked. That was what that was the big thing I didn't notice when, until I rewatched like the fifth time is that she's basically doing the thing where an attacker is standing on the goalkeeper and normally you have another defender in there to sort of shield the goalkeeper but also push that player out and there's no one there so that's where Blackstinius then I think she makes a run to make sure she's on side but nobody is really aware of her because she is 
no one's primary responsibility, even with the kind of hybrid zone system. No one, I think, is sort of tracking her alive to her. And obviously, then the header is won, the rebound is there, and Blackstinius puts it in. That said, even if somebody were tracking her, it's always difficult on those rebounds to like be alive to everything in that moment. But from the outset, that's the U.S. again, just not being alert and not being dominant in a way that we would expect. Yeah. And a good mention of, of Nair. I, I um, clearly missed that fourth minute. Um, because, you know, I told you I didn't make it till the seventh minute. So oh, that's <laughs> no, I think it's, it's the one where basically like I think the ball comes in. There's an idea that she could come off her line to collect it. She doesn't. And then it's like Alex Morgan has to go for this sort of like weird instep mm. clearance that goes right back to Sweden and they reestablish possession yeah. like 20 yards from goal. It yeah. didn't make me happy. It didn't make me happy. Uh, Joe, <laughs> we've talked about, I think, all three goals in various parts. Uh, anything else you'd like to talk about from either Sweden or the U.S.? Man, not really. I think we've covered no. every phase of play for Sweden. Yeah. I guess the only other thing, Sweden attacked in transition very, very well. And maybe we've mentioned that the U.S. counterpressing was lacking in this game. They were slow to react to the ball. They were slow to stop the ball and they got carved up because of it. So that's, I mean, man, the U.S. didn't defend in their block all that well. They didn't defend in transition all that well. Attacking in transition, their passes were sloppy. We've gone in depth about their possession play and, and the flaws in that. Just you can really pick apart this performance, and, and this is game one of the group stage, right? There's two more games. The U.S. is still, I would say, likely to get out of this group with strong performances against New Zealand and against Australia. But I mean, there's there's a lot to pick out here, uh, and even on an individual level, I don't think that many players had strong performances. A lot of players did things well, like we we already talked about Megan Rapino and some of the defensive issues. She was an offensive catalyst when yep. she comes in, but. But the lack of balance in, in terms of being able to do the defensive running, too, was an issue. Rose Lavelle had some great passes in this game, some nice off-ball movement, too, but not consistent with her passing. Too many sloppy errors, too slow to pressure the ball. Julie Ertz, I thought, brought some heat and brought some metal in that press and actually won the ball and allowed the U.S. to play on the front foot. But because of of the holes in midfield around her, she still struggled to contain that area. Not entirely her fault, maybe some instances where it was and some where it wasn't, but just mixed performance on mixed performances and just I, I don't really notice any U.S. players. I didn't really notice any U.S. players that had dominant, wholly positive mm-hmm. performances in this game. I would say the only player that really I think I, like if you ask me to say you have to give me the best U.S. player on the day, I would say Crystal Dunn, I think. And that maybe will raise some eyebrows. But I think a lot of the negativity around her was like seeing the final it's it's the player who who gets posterized is often not the player who is responsible for defending the player who then has the dunk or scores the goal and i think a lot of crystal dunn having to make last ditch tackles and and blocks at the very last moment and she did that I think three times in the first half, almost every single time, if you go back and watch, that's her leaving somebody that she is marking to go pick up somebody who was not tracked or a runner who came through. Uh, the biggest one of those trying to find my notes really quickly is basically done having to like make a pretty much like game saving tackle at that point. Uh, it's the 30th minute. It's Jakobsen has a chance. It's blocked by Dunn as she's like winding up the shoot. She's gotten in on goal and Dunn slides across and makes that block at the very end. But it's Sam Mewis has just completely not tracked that run. Dunn was out wide because of uh, like the initial overlap from Glass. She picked that one up. And I, and I think there it's just like Crystal Dunn had to do a lot of defensive work to cover for her teammates, but also do her own responsibilities. And I think she did about as good of a job as she could have. That said, 
to your point, Joe, still not a ton of attacking impetus there, not a ton of attacking involvement. And so maybe not the balance we would usually expect from her in this one. And I would just say to add on to that really quick is, yes, I feel like she did well in some moments. But if you're not communicating with those players in front of you to help you, I mean, it happened over and over and over again. Like, there's there's a responsibility on your part to be like, okay, guys, uh, somebody, (laughs) you, you. Carly, or not Carly Lloyd, Kristen Press, Megan Rapinoe, Sam Mewis, I need mm-hmm. you because I'm getting worked. I have three players at times to mark and I need you. So I do think there's more responsibility in her, in her communication. And we don't know what she's saying, right? I know there, we did hear some communication, but, um, we don't know what actually is happening. And so I would just say, um, yeah, I just no. don't think it's it's enough. <laughs> then, then there will be no positives. Uh, but let's talk about where the U.S. can go from here, because Joe, I think I think you you said the U.S. should still uh, like likely advance out of this group, should be able to win their remaining games, and I think I am with you. And I think the reason for that is because this performance was so based on Sweden being dominant and backing themselves to go out and get a result. That if they played, it's not like the U.S. went up against a defensive team, couldn't find a way through, were frustrated and slow and the kind of criticisms we've had of other teams this summer. It was basically the U.S. were sort of undone by their own game plan, but by the other team's more aggressive attacking game plan. And I maybe New Zealand and Australia are able to emulate that or try to emulate that. But I think far more likely is we see a more conventional parking the bus, defensive, like mid-low block, try to counter on the U.S. and the U.S. kind of through the directness of their attacks and the repetitiveness of their attacks eventually finds a way through. I still think if we play a team like Sweden or Sweden in the knockout rounds, it, it might be a bigger problem based on this performance. So that's kind of where I am for the remaining group stage games. Uh, where are you two? We'll start with Jordan. I just don't think you want to get this U.S. team mad. And I think they're mad now. <laughs> I think they're upset with their performance. And I think that, uh, the US these next the two, cool. Yeah. Yeah. The next two games are going to uh, be different. I think they really will be different because, um, they have so much quality and they're not, they will never be content with a performance like that. Or will they be able to say, you know, Yes, they've won a lot of things, but you're never going to win with a performance like that. So um, this tournament, the way it's set up, too, is there's so, so many opportunities to make it to the knockout stage. So I, I do think that it's going to be they're going to really look this one at this one and figure out ways to possess better um, to control the pace of the game. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm honestly not worried about them. If the U.S. pass with 20% more accuracy. This is not statistically yeah. accurate, but you know, you, you get the idea here. If they pass just that little extra bit better and they defend with that little extra bit more intensity, I think this game goes a whole lot differently. And I think their next two games are going to go a whole lot differently. They don't have to be perfect tactically to win games. That's what you get when the U.S. women's national team play. They're not going to be flawless in every phase of play. It's really oftentimes unreasonable to expect that at the international level. But man, if the U.S. just clean up some of those passes in midfield, maybe find a little bit of a better balance between playing vertically and and taking a breath, putting their foot on the ball and playing horizontally, and also pressure the ball in midfield a bit more, I I think this team looks totally different coming into the next game. I'm not convinced that their final third structure is going to look all that different. It might have to look a little different against a low block. But I still think they're trying to get numbers in the box to bring the ball 
vertically and, and then crossing the ball into that space. But just cleaning up some of those smaller things would go such a long way for the U.S. And, and we'll find out if that actually happens in their next game. It reminded me of like when a team has to like score five goals to make up goal difference and then they struggle to score that first one. There was that urgency and just rapidness of play to the United States that I think didn't need to be there. So, Joe, I take your point that maybe if you slow it down, possess a bit more, put your foot on it, dictate uh, the tempo of the game, it puts the U.S. in a stronger position. I, I still have those concerns about Sweden basically pulling the United States out of position and making players track a run that they weren't supposed to, and now they're 15 yards too deep or 15 yards further up the field than they expected to be. And I think that goes a long way towards explaining some of that that just disconnect in the U.S.'s possession in the way they wanted to pass. And so that's where I remain concerned that if a team is able to pull the U.S. out and get them stretched and put people in unfamiliar positions, then if it's a 20-yard run back to show for a pass for, from Crystal Dunn instead of a 5-yard pass or 5-yard run, it just slows things down or makes things harder and makes the U.S. more likely to bypass it. And so maybe the answer is just to play a little bit slower against future opponents, but I still have that concern about basically being out of position and then not being able to connect passes as a result. Do either of you have solutions or are you just not as concerned about that one? Maybe I'm just borrowing trouble. I, I think in that case, the solution would potentially be, I mean, Joe mentioned just like winning more of the second balls. Like if you're not going to, if, if playing through it is not going to be it or slowing down the pace of the play is not going to be it. And you decide to play a little bit more direct you have to put more emphasis on the first and second balls and set up your structure in the way that maybe those two wingers aren't as maybe one is a little bit wider, but maybe one's underneath the the front runner and a little bit more tucked more centrally. So you can pick up those balls if you do play more direct. I don't know. That's something just thinking I like of. It. I like it. Uh, I like that the U.S. has another game in, in very short order. Uh, July 24th, not too much of a break. We've got New Zealand. That one is at 8.30 local time, which I think is going to be 5.30 uh, Eastern time. I, I might be wrong on that one. I haven't quite figured out the uh, the time zone conversions, <laughs> but I guess check your local listings for that one. Uh, so it sounds like you two both feel like uh, the U.S. should maybe rebound, play with a little bit more confidence, play with a little bit more deliberate li- deliberateness and a little bit more fight, and we'll be able to get the result. Is that a fair way to summarize as we conclude today? Roger. Yeah, and right. I, sorry, one one quick beat. <laughs> that I don't want I don't want that to overshadow how good Sweden were in this game and yeah. how they sort of dismantled the US, but the US are just good enough to the point where they don't have to nail their tactical game plan to win games. I'd like them to. I don't necessarily think that will happen, but uh yeah, cleaning cleaning things up a bit will go a long way in my view. All right. Well, uh cleaning things up today on today's show is Joe Lowry who's doing the editing. Joe, thank you for that and for all <laughs> your time today. You got it, Taylor. And Jordan, thank you. I know you've got a busy schedule and then a lot going on, so I appreciate you taking the time to break down this game and bringing the tactical analysis, but also the in-game experience. Because you're right, players should probably be able to communicate. That's a very good point. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. I love talking to you guys. So this will be fun going through the tournament like this. There we go. I'm looking forward to that. Listeners, hopefully you all are as well, and we will talk to you all again very soon. (laughs) 